This is it, folks. Hit me with the serenity prayer. God. Is Kara still here? What time's the game start? What? 4.30? All right, we'll try to get out of here by 4.30. <laughs> uh, nothing like a little people-pleasing. <clears throat> well, I had the chance. I want to uh, thank uh, Ava L. and the uh, Bagels and Big Book group for uh, putting this whole thing together. A lot of hard work, a lot of... A lot of arrangements, a lot of stuff, a lot of abuse the woman's taken. She's uh, wonderful, and I want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come and hang out with my friends, and, uh, and thank you guys. Uh, I want to address myself to some of the questions, and then uh, we'll get into our session. Other than your wife, do you, uh, do you communicate resentment with someone you have one with? I, I uh, again, the, the thing I try to do, really try to do, is this whole notion on the top of page 67 of when someone offended, I said to myself. And, again, I love that I said to myself loud enough, not loud enough so that they could hear me, uh, to, to myself. What I try to do, uh, my, my sponsor, Paul, always used to say that he felt this, the secret to life was good communication, that it was a, a, an element of everything, that going to somebody and telling them I have a resentment, I've never seen that put me in a situation where we were going to have an open and honest conversation. If I can tell you how I feel without telling you what to do, that's always been my goal. Because then I'm, 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 I'm doing it without blame, and it's been really, really incredibly helpful to me. Um, please expand on and explain the feeling that resentment is the essence of alcoholism. I don't think, well, it's the essence of alcoholism in that it's the centerpiece. It is, uh, it's, it's described in the big book of AA as the source of all spiritual illness, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. And the thing that is so elusive to me about resentment is the, the, the architecture of it. I'm resentful at you, I'm also resentful at me. I'm resentful at me, I'm resentful at you, I'm resentful at your school. I'm resentful at your government, I'm resentful at your race, I'm resentful at your religion. That that's why I think they said people, institutions, and principles have the power to actually kill. Actually take me out of my own life and lay me down. Um, great question. What is a tweaker? Uh, it's a speedhead, basically what it is. I had to find out after I heard somebody identify as a tweaker what it was. Uh, and it's, uh, it's somebody who likes to be peppy. Please tell us more about how you came to terms with your Nazi resentment. I uh, was doing my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had had <coughs> these resentments against the Nazis, and I had uh, done the kind of work that I explained to you that I did. I had to put these awful defects of character down, just, just awful. You see, a normal person, somebody who is non-alcoholic, might do something I've seen people do in the past that I was incapable of doing. They would have not liked Nazis. They would have made uh, contributions to political organizations that fought Nazism. They would do whatever they could to not be hypocrites and repeat the same behavior. They would have acted like members of society. I never could do that. I didn't do that. So once I put it down on paper, I started 
acting like a member of society. I started contributing money, spending some booze bucks on when I was called by fundraisers to support the political parties I believed in. I started discussing that with my sons. Um, I went on a 12-step call one night. That's a guy with a heavy German accent. And I walk in, I sit down with this guy, and he's like, he's loaded and he's cooked and he's going on and on. And he says to me, you don't understand. I can't get sober uh, because I fought in the Second World War. I said, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'd be very glad to help you. I, I know plenty of guys who, you know, fought in wars, Vietnam veterans, and they've gotten sober. And he said, uh, you don't understand. I, I was in Hitler's army. And I looked the guy in the eye, and I said, well, I'm Jewish, and a lot of my family was killed in World War II, and I love you, and this thing is for you. It's for you. And, and, I, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll show you. I'll do whatever I can do to help you. And then he said, he finally said, no, you don't understand. I'm, I'm, I can't get sober. I'm European. I mean, the next thing is I can't get sober. I'm Martian. The, 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 you know, I mean, so who won the argument? Me. Because I got to look in the eyes of another man and not lie. I knew that I was free. I knew that I examined my own stuff enough to look into his eyes. Now, have I had nightmares about that stuff? Do I have hard feelings about that stuff? Does it still come up? Absolutely. No question about it, you know. No one's ready to have, you know, I'm not ready to have people kiss the hem of my, you know, gown. I'm not, you know, it's, uh, um, I, I can honestly say I haven't had to write about it in a long time. I had the incredible experience of speaking at an AA conference in Thailand uh, a year or so ago. And there were about 170 people there, not more than 10 people from one country. There were people there from Beijing, from the People's Republic of China, from Laos, Cambodia, Bali, um, there were uh, Irishmen and English people and, and a lot of Germans and a lot of Swedes, and they all spoke enough English for us to get along. The one Irish guy was great. He identified his name was Sean. No, really. And uh, he, uh, he said he didn't identify as an alcoholic. He said, my name's Sean, and I've been overserved, which I just, <laughs> I, yeah, I, just uh, I thought it was great. And, um, and I shared uh, how I used the 10-step to uh, get over this thing with Nazis. And... This guy at the end of the meeting walked up to me and he said, my name's, and I'm German, and I just love you to pieces. And we threw each other, our arms around each other. And, and uh, I uh, subsequently uh, wound up sponsoring a guy named Manfred. And uh, we used to kid around. I'd say to him, uh, I'll let you know when you finish with your amends. Uh, uh, and I mean, just to, just to be able to make that joke was, and, and it so happens that he was abused during the war. He, he but, but it was just interesting. I, I sponsored two guys uh, uh, named Manfred and Klaus, which, you know, for me when I came in, it just wasn't on the list of stuff that was going to be possible for me. So that's some of the stuff that's happened uh, with that resentment. Uh, one other thing I want to mention when I'm in the midst of this, again, another uh, uh, gift of the 10th step. My sons, uh, I live with psychos. I mean, uh, I, I met Nancy, uh, I got her on the rebound from a Marxist commune in, in Michigan. They're, they're just nuts. Um, her sons are, she's like the head communist. Her son, my sons are commies. Uh, Micah, uh, in, after high school, went down to Chiapas, Mexico and worked with the Zabatista revolutionaries. Um, <laughs> 
Jesse went to Nicaragua to build houses. I mean, that's, you know, like their politics or not, they're out there. They're doing it. I smoked a lot of dope and talked a lot of long crap and never got out of the living room, you know. He's down there. He's down there doing it. He's doing it. So anyway, when they were 12, the boys had a lot of feelings and a lot of opinions, and their grandparents were over. They're right-wing Republicans. It was not a good time to start talking. You know, it just it was a bad idea. You know, I had known years ago... Um, Let's keep it light and polite and just move on. But the boys are boys, you know, young, tw 10, 12 years old. So they're fighting, they're arguing, they're arguing. My kids are smart. They're really smart and they're hard to argue. And my, my, my father-in-law can't get over on them. And, you know, and then he pulls the plug. He does that thing, that thing. It's, it's a terrible bullying tactic. He looks at both of them and says, you know, I used to feel the way you feel. But when you get older, you won't feel that way anymore. Can't argue with that. There's no way to argue. And I saw a pin get put in my kids. I saw them just go like this. And I waited until their grandparents left. And I said, boys, come inside. I want to talk to you. And I came inside. And I sat him down on the bed. And I looked at him. And I said, listen to me. Your grandfather's a very sweet man. But he was scared. And he lied to you. And the lie he said to you was that he knows what's going to happen to you. I said, I not only feel the same way, basically, my basic politics that I felt when I was your age, I feel it more now. Not only that, I'm able to put some money where my mouth is. Could never do that before. And I saw my sons just go, oh, oh, what an incredible thing. What a wonderful thing. But again, didn't have to teach my in-laws a lesson. I had already written about that, gotten rid of that, and had written about what a lousy piece of crap I was and got to be of some help to my sons. Um, When uh, Micah was in uh, Chiapas, uh, he was uh, a member of something called the Peace Camps, which is installations of Westerners which are sent out to indigenous villages to bear witness to make sure that they're not abused by the Mexican military. So he's throwing himself in between Indians and the military. The Mexican military, which is depicted as a very loving, caring group of people, um, uh, is they don't want my kid there. So I'm having... I'm, these fears are coming up. I'm, I'm like, I'm really having a tough time because I'm having pictures. It's like a bad movie, man. It's just like a, a really bad, awful B film, you know, about what's happening to my kid. So I call my sponsor and I say, I'm frightened of the Mexican military. <clears throat> please remove, please pop, remove my fear of the Mexican military. Turn my attention to what you would have me be. And what, what happened was he said, give it to me, give it to me. Come on. Give it to me. Take the third step. Let the third step inform the tenth step. Let it inform it. Where, 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 are, the deep, where, where are the chinks in the armor? Where is it? How can I go back to the first five propositions? Come on, let me have it. Let me have it. I know you can keep Saturn on its axis. I know you can keep all the subatomic particles moving around the nuclei of the universe. I don't think you're going to help my kid out here. I don't think you... And I'd say, okay, I'm powerless over the Mexican military. Take him. Take my kid. You got it. And I move on with the business of life. And it would come back and nail me. Appropriate, kind of appropriate. And one day, I couldn't tell, it just, it didn't work. It didn't work. And I got Paul on the phone and I told him, I said, I was weeping. I was so scared of what was going to happen to my son. And he said to me something so beautiful. Again, he didn't argue with me. He didn't try to talk me out of being scared. He didn't. He said, boy, it sounds so hard to me. So just imagine this. What if this is the greatest thing that ever happens to him? Wow. What an incredible thing. And I said, kiss my ass.
easy for you to say, not your kid. I said this to myself, but I said it. And, and you know what? I don't know if it's the greatest thing that will ever happen to him, but man, it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to him. He came back from that experience a man, fully cut cloth, you know? I sent him to the hardware store. His mother would say, can you go do that? I said, well, he's been to Chiapas. Maybe he can handle Osh. Let's see. Let's see. Um, and uh, again, incredible gift of, of, uh, of step 10. Um, I'm not going to be able to get to all these, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Uh, how do steps dovetail or work out with those who suffer from uh, serious mental illness, major depression, manic depression, or schizophrenia? It's been my, uh, 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 my experience that, again, once we straighten out spiritually, uh, uh, we, we get well spiritually, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I have, uh, I have known people with serious, serious mental problems that as a result of working on their alcoholism, uh, the dribble down has been tremendous impact. I mean, I'm a man who people used to try to uh, uh, medicate, and, and that, that has not come. I remember I went to one psychiatrist, and he took notes while I was talking to him. And at the end of the session, he said, I'd like to put you on some medication. And I said to him, you know, actually, I'm okay on drugs. I, I got plenty of drugs. I didn't come here for drugs. I came here for something else. And I, didn't, I, I really didn't require him at that time. It has been my experience, and there's a lot of controversy about this in AA, that, that it's an outside interest. I find that it dovetails gorgeously with every illness, every malady that I've seen. I also think that a lot of people have come to AA and found out they're not alcoholics. Uh, I, I don't know how this applies to the specific question answer, but my answer to you is, is that every time I have taken, uh, again, don't perceive these things on, uh, uh, as outside issues, okay? I'm resentful at myself for taking medication. I'm resentful at people in AA for judging me for taking medication. I'm resentful at one specific person who told me I wasn't sober for taking medication. If you start that examination, I bet you something happens. I bet you something happens. I don't know what will happen. Maybe you'll take more medication. Maybe you'll stop taking it completely. Maybe you'll go to a group where people don't have that kind of stuff. Because every group has its own tradition. I personally try to respect the tradition of any group I go to. Because all groups are autonomous. I don't know if that's uh, helpful at all. Um, let me see if there's anything else I can get to now. Uh, you talked about the 12-step programs and therapy as not being a substitute for AA. Would that be the same as switching one meeting for another or doing outside help in addition to AA? Uh, or getting outside. I, again, I don't perceive that getting help is as outside as long as it's a result of me working my sixth and seventh step. I have had to change my home group three times in 16 years. Uh, at 10 years of sobriety, I had to move on with sponsorship. Uh, uh, my sponsor and I had very bad communication, and we had uh, reached a point where uh, I will we weren't being helpful to each other, and I had to move on. And as a result, I had to leave my home group because it really would have been injurious to me, and I think to him if I had stayed there. I went to another group, and my sponsor then started attending that group. And my new sponsor said, the first time you had to do it because it was a response to the inventory process, if you leave this one, you're running. <laughs> and I had to take a look at that. And he, uh, he, his direction to me was beautiful. He said, go to the meeting. Be yourself. As a matter of fact, be yourself more than usual, <laughs> which I really liked. To really go and be deliberate and really thoughtful about doing the things I normally did in that group. 
keeping a commitment, doing what I was doing, you know, and letting the other stuff go, letting it happen the way that it was going to happen. So for me, and uh, I um, also then I start, uh, we started another home group, which wound up being uh, because we had a format that, that did not adhere to the traditions, the group wound up eating itself up. Uh, every time there was a group conscience, uh, decisions were made on the stand of one vote. It was majority rules, and the meeting changed as a result of teetering back and forth every business meeting, and the meeting just wound up getting ground to bits. So me and a bunch of guys moved on, started another meeting, and started one that really kind of adhered to the, uh, the, the principles of the traditions and the principles of GSO and the, uh, and the concepts, you know, which... Uh, uh, talks about the minority voice being being heard. <clears throat> um, I'm sorry that I can't get to all of these. They're really, really great, great questions. <clears throat> I have a sponsee named Phil. He's a really great guy. And um, <clears throat> when he was uh, uh, in his first year or so, a couple of years of sobriety, he came to me and he said, Scott, I'm dating a woman for a couple of months, and uh, she's pregnant, and I think I want to have the baby with her and, and get married. What do you think? <laughs> I love that. Um, sometimes sponsoring certain people is kind of like sponsoring a copy of People magazine. Uh, 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 <laughs> all you get is headlines. You don't get any story. You get, uh, I, I swear this happened. I had a guy call me and say, hi, I'm getting divorced, and I said, from who? <laughs> who had, I had I had no idea the guy had been married. Absolutely none at all. It's just it's headlines, and that's okay. <laughs> um, as I told you, I love reasons to drink, and one of my favorites I've ever heard in my life happened. This guy, I was sponsoring this guy for about 15 minutes, and he uh, he lived with his wife. He was a, a male prostitute, and he had a gay lover, and he called me to tell me he drank, and I said. Oh, why? <laughs> and he said, I caught my wife cheating on me. And um, now I understand that absolutely and completely. I understand that absolutely and completely. That was the product of one of two processes. That was either the product, that was either the occasional hunter inspiration. He just, he had to come up with some and there it was, a polished jewel, fully cut cloth, boom, a pearl. She was cheating on me. Or that was the product of weeks in the hamster cage. Weeks in the rat's maze. Weeks of cutting and pasting reality, of turning the whole world. You've got to turn the whole world so it slips in slot by slot. I know, I live with my wife, I'm a hooker with a beeper, I got a gay lover, but the bitch cheated on me! I'm out of here. You've got to move the whole universe. You've got to cut and paste in reality and get it all to facilitate the alcoholism. You've got to rearrange your whole life to accommodate the alcoholism. And I understand this. And the only person that I can see or change it in, as page 67 says, is me. So Phil comes to me. Now, you know I have, an, I have a feeling about this. I have a feeling about it. But I have, I have made my mind up to not play God. And I said, I took a breath. I don't know, I don't know that I would have said this to anybody but Phil. And I said to him, you know what? If you want to have an abortion and you don't have the money, I'll lend you the money and drive you over there. And if you want to get married and have the baby, I'll show up and be the best man at the wedding. And uh, Phil had been a real broken guy. He had come into uh, AA, sleeping on his uh, drug dealer's 
uh, floor. He, he was just a great guy, and our home group just loved him. And they were so excited about that he was getting married, and they were excited about the baby. And, 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 uh, and guys were just invested in this family, really excited about it. And, and the uh, time and place came, and they were having a home birth, and the baby was born, and the baby was very sick, very, very sick. She was just rushed to the hospital in time for her life to be saved. Um, they, she had to be placed on an ECMO machine, which, if you know anything about it, is just one of the most invasive, terrible things that can happen to an infant. They, they actually have to go into the body, separate the aorta from the heart, move the blood, get oxygenated, and move it back into the body. The lungs won't, and they have to, and you hope that the lungs will start responding while the baby's still alive. I mean, it's few, it, as, as bad as it can get in, in at that time. And he, he came back to the group. The 12th tradition that night was for him. The guys threw $700 in the basket. He's a working Joe. You know, he can't take a week off from work. He's a working guy. And we went down and gave him the dough down there, you know, and, um, and uh, you have to be uh, a member of the family to go to neonatal intensive care. I know because my baby was in neonatal intensive care, and there was nobody to visit my baby in neonatal intensive care except for me and my wife when I finally came down. But the AA Army showed up, you know, for Phil's daughter, you know. So, you know, their aunts and uncles are showing up, and, you know, really big black men and tiny, <laughs> tiny Japanese women, overweight Jewish guys, everybody. And, like, after a couple of days, the nurses are going, yeah, you're a, yeah, sure, you're a cousin, go. They didn't even want to hear the lies anymore. They just kept sending everybody in. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, she needed blood. She needed a lot of blood. And the call went out for blood, and everybody shows up. First of all, half of us can't give blood because we're either, either ex-hypes or we've just gotten our nose tattooed five minutes ago. And you can't give, you know, you can't give blood if you have a fresh tattoo or if you're a hype. So, but, and then we're pissed off they won't take our blood. How dare they? Now, I'm hearing 10 steps. They won't take my blood. So... <laughs> the baby's in the hospital for 16 days. She's home two weeks already, and the hospital calls Phil and says, they, you, they keep coming and giving blood. I mean, you might want to call these people. They're dropping it off in jars. I mean, it's like, it's, uh, it's ridiculous already. And then I got this wonderful gift from my friend Phil a year after that. He pulled me aside, and he said, you know what? I really have to tell you something. When you told me that that night, I didn't believe you. I didn't believe you when you told me you'd do either one for me. He said, but you know what? You were at the hospital every day the baby was sick, and I believe you. I believe you because you showed me. Well, what an incredible thing for a guy who couldn't show up the night that his father died. What an incredible thing for a guy who, who couldn't go to the hospital to help his sick family. And it's because I kept it on deck. It's because I kept it informed by step 10. For me, that's the way it worked, you know? I um. I reached a point with um, my first sponsor, it was really interesting, an extraordinary guy. And we reached this impasse in, uh, in our relationship. Uh, where, and we, we both, we, we were bringing bad communication skills to the table, and we couldn't have an open and honest discussion or, or a good separation. So I don't know how to separate, uh, left to my own devices. I can leave the village when it's been raised, when it's an ashtray. If the cattle are poisoned, everyone's pillaged, everything's stolen, the huts are burnt, I can say, bye. Uh, but I, 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 don't, I don't know how to, I, I left to my own device, I don't know how to fight well. I don't know how to do that. And he and I had 
a terrible separation, as odious a separation I've ever had. And when, uh, in the aftermath of this, one of the things that it taught me was to look to the quality of separation I'm having in my life, to have an open and honest conversation, to discuss it in an open and honest way. What a gift. What an incredible gift. You know? And having a successful separation doesn't mean that everyone's happy. You know, that doesn't, isn't necessarily part of the deal. I can have a successful separation if I've been open and honest, haven't been a retaliator, done it in a useful, purposeful way for me. And I want to tell you something. I've had to separate 20 times from every sponsee that I've worked with long term. I have to separate the newcomer and accept the member of AA that they're becoming. I have to accept the fact that they're becoming a sponsor and not beat them up and think that they need my tutelage all the time. You know, very often, you know, I used to hear this uh, when I was new, my first thought is the wrong thought. Well, I want to tell you something, that's not true for me anymore. Quite often, my first thought is the right thought. The, the occasional hunch or inspiration becomes a working part of the mind. I, you know, if I'm in self, I'm screwed. The first, the no thought is the right thought. But if I'm okay, if I'm doing my work, if I'm staying on top of it, quite often the first thought will be the right thought. Um, and... Uh, and I've had to have many separations from my wife and many separations from my sons. I've had to separate from the toddler and see that I have a relationship with the little boy. I've had to separate from the little boy and have a relationship with the teenager. Um, my uh, last birthday, I was 49. I, I know I don't, I don't look it. And uh, I uh, was going to say something. And my son Jesse said, you know, Dad, you're always talking. Let me say something. So... He, he made a toast to me, and he said to me, you make me excited about life. Wow, what an extraordinary thing. What an incredible thing. I talked uh, down in a place called Greenville, Mississippi. Big shul down there. And I, uh, uh, and the guy, my host in Greenville, Mississippi, was a really interesting guy. Uh, and what had happened in his community was... Uh, the civil rights movement failed. It just didn't work. And um, integration failed. Uh, they integrated the schools down there, and uh, there was white flight from the schools. Then a lot of the white people voted the money away from the public schools and went to private schools, impoverished the public school system, which was all African-American. And it, it just it was a mess, an absolute mess. And... Uh, this guy who was my uh, host down there said to me, you know, he was a child of the 60s. He grew up with that consciousness, and it had failed. And the first time he walked into AA in Greenville, Mississippi, he saw African-American and Caucasian people hugging and kissing each other and putting their hands out and helping each other out. And he saw the exact thing he had wished for his whole life. And that's what happened to that member of the Aryan Brotherhood I told you about who... Uh, who asked me what to bring to my kid's bar mitzvah. That's what happened with Roland, who was tucking my kid in every night. And um, I started writing resentments against my sponsor, and writing resentments against my sponsor, which I felt tremendously guilty about. He, he was an incredible guy, an incredible guy. He had held the Torah at both of my kid's bar mitzvahs. He was my best friend. He was the best friend I ever had. And we had had this lousy separation, and I kept saying, I'm resentful at, at blank for for putting me down, you know, it affects my and the defects, and the defects over and over again. And I would read them to my other sponsor, Paul. I'd read them, and I'd read them, and I'd read them. And I'm like, what do I do instead? I'm going over the first five propositions in the book. That's not working. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why. Why am I not getting relief? What is it? 
And I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know if it's sex, if it's money, if it's food. I don't know what, if you have no plague in sobriety, that's fine. If you do, I don't know what it is. But I know the answer for me is in the steps. I didn't know what key to turn. And Paul finally said, I said, what am I doing? He said, you've done everything except forgive him. You haven't forgiven him. Now, I don't think that forgiveness is my job. I think that's, I don't think that's right. Because as a member of AA, if I forgive you, that means I'm saying you're wrong. So I don't think that that's my job. I don't think that that's something I can do. I don't understand forgiveness. I don't understand pity. I don't understand empathy. I never understood pity my whole life. I'd look and i go, yeah, I feel sorry for you, you poor schmuck. I don't get, I don't understand pity. I think pity is condescension. I think pity is, is platforming yourself on some, some lofty place where you can dispense pity. I don't understand that it's empathy, that it's love, that it's me feeling for you. You know, what a beautiful thing to, to feel love for a, a, a you know, my wife knows many uh, men and women in Al-Anon who live with active alcoholism, you know, and thank God that some people can love a dying thing. It doesn't make them stupid. It makes them who they are. That's their experience. Thank God we can love a dying thing. Thank God we can love someone who can't stop drinking. What does it say in our book? God has either taken their, their desire to drink away or not. It's not what you're doing to me. You know, and sometimes, you know, I'm positive this is why God made more than one of us. I can help a guy, you can't help. You can help a guy, I can't help. You know, I know it. I know that I can look into the eyes because I've had the opportunity to look in the eyes of someone who has been drunk on the day that their father died and say, I know this is for you too. One of the things that used to drive me crazy when I came to AA, one of the most painful things for me, is at times I'd hear people get the podiums and say, I just had a kid and thank God they've never seen me drunk. And man, I'm telling you, my skin would just crawl because my kids had seen me drunk plenty. And I had hurt them plenty. And the thing I didn't get is that there was no premium on that. That's just their story. That's not better than people who have seen me drunk. I've seen some of the worst parenting I've ever seen in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Just because you're sober doesn't mean you're going to be a good parent. I've seen some of the most boneheaded stuff I've ever seen, drunk and sober, you know. So uh, I had to understand that that person, you know what, maybe they couldn't help a guy who's coming and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've been hurtful to my kids, but I can sit down with that guy and look him in the eyes and say, you know, and my kids carry the message. They've been carrying the message for years. Uh, uh, one day, I, Jesse was about five, six years old, and I had this new guy in the house. I go to the bathroom. I come out, and Jesse's looking at the guy. goes, what's Stepion? Uh, guy goes, four, four. I said, he's six. You don't even have to answer him, really, if you don't want to. Um, my favorite thing he ever did, though, is a guy came to do his fifth step one night. He came back the next night. Jesse's doing his homework, and without looking up, he went, what's the matter? Blew it? Got to do it again? Uh, and um, <laughs> my sponsor gave me a tape and a copy of a piece of non-conference approved literature called The Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And in the back, and there's two uh, incredibly powerful sections of the book for me, many, many powerful sections of the book. Two of the most powerful are he's got a section on Sermon on the Mount where he breaks it down and comments on it. And then he's got a copy in the back of the book where he goes over the Lord's Prayer line by line, and he has a chapter on each line. 
And in the chapter, in the section on the Lord's, on the Sermon on the Mount, he discusses a section of, of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, it's called Resist Not Evil. And man, it is the description. You can really see where Bill and Bob and these guys, where a lot of the framework of AA came. It's the expression, the perfect expression of one day at a time. He says, stop making oaths. Stop doing it. Stop making pronouncements. Stop making declarations. Stop resisting evil. Stop trying to keep it away. Stay in today. Right now. Right there. Right in between that clap. Wake up. That's what you got to do. And he, and he got, I mean, he's outrageous. He's a Christian man, and he says stuff that I know a lot of people were not, were very grouchy about. He says that any religion that asks its, uh, its clergy to take lifelong oaths is missing the point. Wow, what a thing for a minister to say. What an incredible thing to say. This friend of mine in AA, who, he, he talks about, he's a great guy. He uh, was brought up Catholic, and um, he has... Uh, his uh, sister became a nun, so he figured when he was a little kid that Jesus was his uncle because uh, she had married uh, Jesus, so I, I, I got a kick out of that. But, um, <laughs> um, and the other really powerful thing to me, which my sponsor took me to, was um, the section on forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in, uh, in the back of the book. And that's, uh, I've given you a copy of that. Uh, if you go to page 171, which is the second uh, flip over, on the bottom of the uh, uh, bottom of the first paragraph on page 171, it makes reference to something. It's basically putting forward to you the following notion: If you're not forgiving people, how can you continue to say this prayer? It's said at most AA meetings. How? In God's name, if you are not forgiving people, if you're holding a grudge, how could you continue to mouth the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? So, he writes, Should you now attempt to repeat it without forgiving, it can safely be predicted that you will not be able to finish it. If he was, if he was a little more New York, I think he would have said, it should, you should choke on it. You wouldn't. Um, <laughs> This great central clause will stick in your throat. Now, if we turn to uh, page 173, which is the flip, it it says uh, on the bottom again of the second paragraph, if you cannot forgive at the present, you will have to wait for your demonstration until you can, and you will have to postpone finishing your recital of the Lord's Prayer too, or involve yourself in the position that you do not desire the forgiveness of God. Because if you're not forgiving them, then you obviously don't want the forgiveness of God yourself. You are abdicating your right to forgiveness. Now, I too, as I said, I needed to not be on my eight-step list, and a lot of people needed to be on their eight-step list. And um, I I should tell it just because I like telling it any time I talk. The best reading of Step 8 I've ever heard in my life came from a guy. I, I heard this guy. It was very early in my sobriety. I was a couple of weeks sober. I was at my old home group, and it was a guy named Nino. He had a heavy New York accent, and he had never read Chapter 5 before. He was there with a hospital group. He had hospital plastic on his wrist, never read Chapter 5, was reading it for the first time, and he got up to Step 8, and he read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! And he looked out into the room as if to say, have you seen this? Do you know what's in here? 
it was so beautiful. It was the purest reading of the step I've ever heard in my life. Because it's the only thing I saw. I didn't see anything on the list. I just, no, not those people, not that money. I would not have taken that much money if I knew I had to give it back. No way. Think I'm stupid? <laughs> not the car. <clears throat> um, so, when I say forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, I'm not forgiving myself. I'm asking God to dispense forgiveness. The only person it seems that I can dispense forgiveness to is this other person. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean I'm right and I'm wrong. The opposite, uh, the, 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 the opposite of that is, is not, I'm still a grudge holder. At any rate, flip the page, page 175. He talks about in the preceding material, he says that you are spiritually linked to anything you're resentful to. You are connected to it with a fastening that is stronger than steel. You cannot imprison somebody in the prison of resentment without being the jailer. You cannot have a jail without a jailer. And if you're a jailer, Baba Ram Das, who's an old acid head, who I just think is adorable, I really love him, was teaching meditation in a jail. And he said to the uh, prisoners of this jail, he said, if you learn meditation, the only people here who will be in prison will be the guards, which is just true. And so, so true in terms of what I'm talking about right now. So you have placed yourself to be in jail and completely connected to the person that you're resentful towards. So the method of forgiving is this, second paragraph 175. Get by yourself and become quiet. Repeat any prayer or treatment that appeals to you or read a chapter of the Bible or the big book or anything else. When, then quietly say to yourself, I fully and freely forgive X, mentioning the offender's name. I loose him and let him go. I completely forgive the whole business in question. As far as I am concerned, it is finished forever. I cast the burden of resentment upon the God within me. He is now free. I am free too. I wish him well in every phase of his life. That incident is finished. The truth has set us both free. I thank God. Then get up and go about your business. On no account repeat this act of forgiveness because you have done it once and for all. And you do it a second time. To do it a second time would be tacitly to repudiate your own work. Afterward, whenever the memory of the offender or the offense happens to come into your mind, bless the delinquent briefly and dismiss the thought. Do this, however, many times the thought may come back. After a few days, it will return less and less. And I just want to tell you that I have had to do a lot of work before I got in a position to do this. I had to do a lot of tenth-step work. And I found that going back to the first five propositions in the book, the times that it has not worked, that I have not been relieved, I've had to take another spiritual leap, and that it was to forgive my sponsor, to make this act of forgiveness. I was so ground up, so willing to be rid of it. What's the message of the six and seven step? Pop, I'm done. Take show business. Take this. Take the eating. Take the sex. Take this. I can't bear this anymore. I'm willing to do anything. Anything. But then I gotta do it. I gotta call before I do it. I gotta call before I pick up my mouse. I gotta call before I do that stuff. My wife talks about it in her story so beautifully about calling her sponsor and saying, I did it again. I did it again. I yelled at the boys again. I got it. And finally, the war of attrition got, it starved it out. And that one day she got to call her sponsor and say, Ruby, I'm scared. I'm gonna yell at the kids. Boom. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So I, I, uh, 
I uh, performed a, a, an act of forgiveness with my sponsor, and I, uh, I just can't tell you how much I love the guy, how highly I think of him, what an unbelievably powerful gift this has been uh, for me uh, to have, to be able, you know what, what an what a awful thing to have a great relationship and then to have that relationship be informed and colored by the lousy, uh, the, the lousy uh, separation. How many times in my life have I had an explosive separation from somebody who I thought was very close to me? And I thought, well, what is this? Was this all a lie? Did we not really love each other? Did we not believe the things we said to each other? Was this not a great friendship? It can't be. It can't be because now it's, it's so ugly. It's so terrible. You know what? I don't buy it anymore. I don't want my bad separations to inform my life. Because I deal with some wacky people. I heard somebody at a meeting the other day say that they... Um, they, when they make an amends, they ask the people they're making amends how they should make amends. Whoa! I better make some amends to some pretty crazy people. I certainly don't want them orchestrating the next couple of years of my life. I mean, I, I uh, um, you know, I, I do that with my higher power and with my God. I, I might ask a couple of questions, but not for instruction, not like that. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and I have come to know, to find out, that some people have explosive psychologies. Some people in certain situations with certain factors come to bear, and they blow up, their brain blows up. I become something less than human to them. It becomes okay. You know, i got to tell you something. People say things in email that you would never say to a human being. I mean, it's like it's psycho. People say and do things in email that if they ever had to stand in the presence of somebody and look them in the eyes, they would never say it. Anonymity is not always a great thing. There's a, a, a certain there's a, a certain protection of an, in anonymity and expressing. That's why character assassination is such a, a lethal thing. <clears throat> um, so, this tool of forgiveness has been uh, incredibly powerful for me. I had a, another. Uh, there were people who had been in my old AA family who, after I left my sponsor, became very angry at me. And they were very uh, open about it and very expressive about it. And they would, you know, people who would refuse to say hello to me and who would just snarl at me when they saw me. And I want to tell you, it was a great lesson for me because it really is awful to not be forgiven. It's really so awful to be on the business end of that kind of open expression of hostility. It's, and you know what? Mea culpa. I've done it. I've done it many times. Uh, you know, I'm a snubber. I'm a I'm, I'm a, a, a glowerer, a snubber, and a starer. And you know, I'm a bully, and uh, it's bad behavior. It's it's behavior that I don't benefit from, and certainly I don't know anybody does. And it was an incredible uh, 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 lesson for me after having performed this act of forgiveness. So what what uh, Emmett Fox suggests is that until you, if you're still um, not forgiving someone, you shouldn't say the prayer. Uh, that might be uh, helpful to some people. It might be annoying, it might, and, and you might not feel, you know, uh, feel that a lot. I, since I learned this, I find it harder to say the prayer when I'm really holding on to something powerful against another person. Um, <clears throat> before I move on to kind of the last few comments I wanted to make, uh, I wanted to just, there were a couple of things that were unclear about the uh, inventory process that people were asking me about which I just want to uh, get go through, and if there are any other 
uh, burning questions that people have in the House. I'd like to address them. But um, <clears throat> when I described the resentment section, again, I, I would describe that you, you're asked to write twice. You're asked to write three columns of who I'm resentful at, why I'm resentful at them, and what it affects. Self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. I try, when I write the cause, to do two things. Number one, I try not to write a story. I'm going to tell the story when I read it. I'm resentful at my father for not playing with me when I was a kid. Okay? The story is more complicated. He didn't, he was awkward physically. He didn't ever get me in a little league. There's a story to tell there that I might tell the guy I'm reading it to. But I want to make this doable. I want this inventory to be doable. I want the 10 step to be doable. I want the 12 step to be doable. I don't want to have to dot every I and cross every T. I don't think I'm going to wind up drunk, go to wherever I'm going to go, and God's going to say, you know, you forgot self-centered. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think I'm going to have an easier, more fluid time in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and then, so I write the resentment, resentment number one. And I was resentful at my father for dying, for not playing with me as a kid, for not teaching me how to ask women how to dance, for being uptight sexually. That's five different resentments. And I like to write them each out. I like to just clean out the cavity as much as I can. So that's resentment number one. Then defect of character list number one on a separate sheet of paper. A lot of people use the phrase, my part. I understand why they do, and it's nowhere in the big book of AA. Does it use the phrase, my part? My part was... I was a hose bag. I mean, my part was I was a lion cheating invertebrate. And, uh, and I had a lot of parts, like I cheated, I stole. I find it, I can't really bring that stuff to God. What I can bring to God is, Pop, please remove the self-centeredness, turn my attention to what you would have. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? So again, I'm not indicting anybody who does that. It's just not a tool that I use. So I'm asked to write twice about resentments, once about fears. I am frightened of, and I write it every time I write a line out. I am frightened of dying. I am frightened of living. I am frightened of success. I am frightened of failure. And then the sexual inventory in that paragraph on page 62, I'm sorry, 69, uh, about the seven points with the people who are injured on the top. And I go through each situation. And you know what? Every time I had sex, someone wasn't injured. Sometimes just I was injured. Sometimes they were injured. Sometimes me and they were injured. Sometimes I couldn't remember the name. The woman with the red hair, the lady with the dog, the lady I thought was a lady, the... Hey, hey, hey! Um, and <laughs> after I put who uh, was harmed, then I write about the seven points. So I, I hope, because I know that uh, some of that was unclear to a few people. Are there any questions before we guide this home? Yeah. Well, it says in the book we write about people, institutions, and principles. People you know, institutions could be governments, banks, schools, the military, and principles can be the Christian work ethic is a principle. Homophobia is a principle. I mean, what, you know, uh, racism is. And I have resentments against others, and I have resentments against myself. The resentments against myself for me are just as powerful, in some ways more powerful. Now, I had, I am not <clears throat> a suicide guy. I'm a homicide guy. I vastly prefer your death to mine. I always have. Uh, and uh, you go first. And I'm not knocking the suicide people. This is not an indictment of the suicide people. It's kind of the flip side of the same thing. I just, my whole thing has been Scott Redmond kills wife, kills kids, refuses to commit suicide. That's always the, uh, that's the headline I've always seen. Um, so a lot of people 
really need to be on their eight-step list. A lot of people have much more resentments against themselves than other people. I had a lot against myself, but I hated you way more than I hated me. Way, way more. Is that helpful? You know, a lot of people do that, which I think is great. I, I, the question was, do I do the other columns? Do I take a look at the defects of character that feed fears when I do a fear inventory? And uh, I, I don't. I know a lot of people do, which I think is really a great thing. Um, the, uh, and again, I, anything anybody's doing is okay with me. I personally don't do it. I just write the fear out and then do six and seven, which I described before. Please remove this fear, turn my attention to what you would have me be. I humbly rely upon you. But I know what you're talking about, doing the other columns of the fears, which I think is great. Anybody else? Yeah. Could you say it again? I can't hear you. I've done a lot of them. You know, I've done a lot of them, and I've stood in the, uh, there was a guy at work uh, who I uh, miserably mistreated behind his back. And I ran into him out in the open world, and I stood in his presence, and I said to myself, it is absolutely, and it just hit me, it's absolutely inappropriate for you to tell this guy what you did behind his back. He doesn't know, and it didn't hurt his career, and it would really, you know, I, I've had uh, people come to me in AA meetings and say, you know, I used to really hate you, but now I like you. Thanks. You know, it's like somebody saying, you know, I, I, I was having sex with your wife for a long time, and I'm not anymore. <laughs> I, I feel better now. Um, and what happened was I stood in his presence, and I realized that I, I shouldn't say anything. It, and it washed over me, and I felt it go away. So that was an in-person amends, a direct amends, where I've had to sit down with people and say, I'm so sorry for what I've done, um, have been only successful if, if I'm, it's really funny, after I did this work with my sponsor that I told you about, the forgiveness work, I spent a year of my life knowing that I owed him an amends. And I couldn't put, I knew that talking to him, he did not want to talk to me, and that it would be injurious and self-centered for me to talk to him. So I knew I had to write a letter. And I knew that if I put that letter back in the, in the mail needing any response, I was cooked. I was dead meat. And it took me 12 months before I was able to say a prayer, put it in the mailbox, and, and let it go. It was absolutely extraordinary. I have had, as I described, you know, my brother told me, if you're alive every day for a million years, it won't be enough. Um, it says in our book so beautifully, it says that the mo when in a situation where we have been injured more than the other person, where they've been more injurious to us, we find these amends to be the most fulfilling, the most remarkable. But, and also, again, step 10, that if, if the, uh, uh, the amends is not successful in that, if it, if it runs afoul again, then I can readdress it. In, in, in the 10th step. And, and the 10th step not only brings me back through 1 through 5, but it gives me an opportunity to do 8 and 9. Is there an amends available? You know, is, is there something necessary that I need to do? I hope that's helpful. Ava. Did everybody hear that? 
the question was, when I write resentments, do I list all the names out and then, uh, and then go and fill the other stuff in, or do I go straight across? Uh, this addresses a wonderful uh, question uh, in, in, uh, in the pile. I don't know if I can find it. But basically the question says, will you ever ha will you, can you ever stop doing this work? Um, it's something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but I really loved it. And uh, about some about not wanting to do the work. And the reason why I bring this question up now is I do it any way I can. Any way I can. There were times when I worked on my fourth step where I'd, I'd write 25, resentful at, 25 names, I'd write them all out. But then I'd get so far behind on the defective character list, it would seem like an impossible task. And I'd say, okay, I learned that lesson. Then I'd go straight across. Sometimes I would write one resentment and get so sick from it, I'd walk away from it. I couldn't even look at it again. Somebody was talking to me earlier about having done an inventory and walked away from it for a period of time and, uh, and thinking, do I have to redo it now? And I said, my, I don't know what the guy should do, but I know for me is, why would you have to redo it? Why can't, you've already done this work. Why not take advantage of it? Um, the, Sometimes I find I write a resentment uh, straight across and it informs my fear list. Sometimes I have found that I'm writing a resentment about a sexual thing that is really going to be better examined in the sexual inventory. I guess what I'm saying is, is that I find all three sections of the inventory feeding each other, feeding off each other. And that for me, I want to, uh, that mostly I write out, at this point my, my ten steps are rarely rarely more than four or five items, two, three, four or five items. If I really hit the skids and I'm really in bad shape, it might appear, a longer document might, might appear. So I have found it to be any way I can. It's been very helpful to me. Yes? Yeah, and again, I mean, that's pretty much what I've been talking about in terms of 10. That sometimes a prayer for me is trying to wish it away. I cannot will these things away any more out than alcohol. I gotta do the 10 step, I gotta address it as my spiritual. What do I have to do? I'm willing to do anything. Maybe I have to stop going to the meeting. Maybe that's it, who knows? I don't know. My, you know, my voice said stay away from animals. Maybe, or as my, Paul said to me, maybe I have to go to the meeting and be myself more than usual. I don't know what the answer is, but the other part about it is a lot of times now when I'm approached with that kind of vitriol, number one, it shakes me up. It's very scary to me to be met with that kind of hostility. It really shakes me up. At this point, if I've really done my work, I'm going to be able to look at that person and say, oh, you poor baby. You poor baby. This must be so terrible to be consumed by this. It's terrible. You've put me in jail and you're the jailer. You know, so, yeah.
the question was, uh, does the, you have to make amends just for the stuff you've done before sobriety or the stuff you do after sobriety? You don't ever have to make amends for anything you did after you got sober. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, and by the way, I'm not trying to make a joke at your expense. It's just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding you. I, I, uh, um, I had, uh, uh, when I was 10 days sober, I was given a job directing a television commercial in the West Texas desert. I was 10 days sober, uh, and the, uh, the meeting I was going to for 10 days, I said, I'll, I'll be ba- gone for 10 days, and I'll be back. And they said, where are you going? And I said, down to the Rio Grande River. And they went, oh? I said, to direct the commercial. And they went, oh, sure. They thought I was muling for a cartel, you know? And I went down there, and when I was... I, I, I was 10 days sober, and I had a Panavision crew in the desert. I created more wreckage in those 10 days. Half my fourth step, half my eighth step list was composed of the incredibly boneheaded stuff I did. So um, I have, uh, it's really enriched my sobriety and made my life bigger and bigger because I've made those amends. I'm going to take a couple more. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand the question. Where it says, where have I harmed others? Where? Right. The where I put whom had we hurt, that's why I put whom I hurt at the top of the page in the sexual inventories. Uh-huh. Well, no, I mean, that's all through my inventory. I mean, the people I've heard, if you, it says in the end of Chapter 5, if you made an inventory, you already have a list of people you've harmed. So I have the list of people I've harmed as a result of all the stuff I've done and they've done on my inventory. I've, and then I've got the people I've harmed on my, uh, on my sexual inventory. And then I found that, yeah, there are people who didn't appear on my inventory who I have harmed, and they wound up on my eight-step list. And again, I think it's great that those people do that. It's just not something that, it's not a tool that I use, but it sounds like a great tool. I'm going to take one more and then I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah. The question is, is how did the resentment against the Nazis or my aunt uh, impact each one of those five things? Um, my resentment against the Nazis for slaughtering Jews affected my self-esteem because it really made me feel different and apart from other people. Uh, pocketbook because I had this uh, guilt about being a Jew, about Jews being uh, um, accused of uh, being money lenders. I came from a very poor family, so uh, it was real weird for me. Uh, ambition, my ambition was to be part of the world, feeling okay. I, I felt very bizarre that I was part, I was shown these horrific films in Hebrew school as a kid with no explanation. And uh, um, uh, personal relationships, it affected my personal relationships with Germans, with, uh, with people uh, who weren't Jewish, and it affected me sexually because there was a lot of shame, a lot of stuff about being less than, of not being as robust as non-Jewish people in a way. So that's how that touched on that. And the way it affected uh, those five things with my aunt is certainly my self-esteem. I felt awful. Uh, 
pocketbook uh, because I had, in my uh, course of action with my aunt over the years, I got back at her financially. I did some stuff. She bought me some gifts. I was particularly unappreciative of it, so there was a money thing involved. Self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition. My ambition was to be a guy who didn't, you know, who wasn't helpless, who could take care of himself. And that was impacted by uh, the event. Uh, personal relations, certainly with her, and sexually, because I felt castrated by it. Wouldn't that be a great last line for a workshop? And I felt castrated by it. <laughs> if you're new here, welcome to AA. Our problem mainly rests in our mind. That's the good news and the bad news. It's the good news and the bad news. Alcoholics Anonymous is the only, only treatment from a fatal illness where the text includes the sentence, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. There's no book about cholera that says cholera is a hoot. You'll love cholera. It's fabulous. You'll meet people who will have cholera. You'll love it. You'll meet people who just caught cholera. It doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous is the only treatment from a fatal illness that actually leaves the sufferer in better condition than they were in before they got the, the disease. And the bad news is, is our problem mainly rests in our mind. If the problem didn't really rest in our mind, this would have been a two-sentence workshop. It would have been, you're not drinking, have a good day. <laughs> we wouldn't have had anything to discuss today. But the problem mainly rests in our mind. I'll tell one story. It's one of my favorite stories, and then I'm going to leave you guys. Uh, some years ago, um, my wife was walking through our bedroom, and she knew I was talking to a new guy, and she heard me say into the phone, Let's say the aliens are coming. So she stopped short. She ain't missing a second of this. I said, look, I, the aliens might be coming. That's an outside interest. I have no opinion on it. I have one question. Why you? Why have they come for you? Why have they traversed the universe for your sorry ass? Why have they come for you? You're two weeks old. You have no life. Why? And plus, he's sleeping with a Bible on his chest to ward them off. So they're going to traverse the galaxy, walk into his room, and go, oh, no, the Bible, let's go home. Years later, I was sharing this at my home group. I was sharing the story, and the guy who I was telling the story about walked into the room. So I'm looking at him, and as I'm telling the story, I saw the guy go like this. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so the horrible memory slide into his, his mind. So if you're new here and the aliens are coming for you, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome home. I love you. Thank you so much. I'm going to close this with the serenity prayer because I don't want to pressure anybody right now. You'll give it some thought before you t say it the next time, okay?